DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way Nothing, nothing I'm gonna fly higher I'm gonna fly Welcome to the Hustle Unlimited podcast. We're already on episode four of season two, and this one is with one of the most influential people in the Triangle startup community, and you'll want to hear what he has to say about how venture capitalists can help entrepreneurs, but only if they're completely honest with their VCs and really themselves. I'm Jason Gillikin, producer of Hustle Unlimited and CEO of the EarFluence Podcast Network. This season so far, we've had on Heather Chandler, former senior producer of Fortnite at Epic Games, Javier Leva from the Pretend Podcast, and Molly Demarest, the GM of American Underground. And today, our guest is Tim McLaughlin, partner at Co-Founders Capital. Co-Founders is a venture capital firm in the Triangle started by David Gardner, and partners Tim and David have raised over $30 million to invest in tech startups. On the show today, you'll hear how Tim and David got connected, why the Triangle is such a special place for Tim and his family, why not all businesses are investable businesses, and why the only way that your investors can help you is if you're honest with them. Such a great interview, and I can't wait to share it here with you. But before we get started, if you want these episodes in your feed every Monday so you can be inspired for the week ahead, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Give us a rating and review as well, and share this episode on any social media platform. That helps find more great inspirational guests, the hustlers, the trailblazers, the movers and shakers, and the people who make their communities a better place. So let's get started. Here's WalkWest CEO, investor, speaker, mentor, advisor, and all-around hustler himself, host of the Hustle Unlimited podcast, Donald Thompson. Hey guys, it's Donald Thompson here with Tim McLaughlin, and uh, he's with Co-Founders Capital, and uh, he's here sharing with us on Hustle Unlimited, and we're so glad that he's here. So Tim, 
Thank you so much for being a part of yeah, what we're great, doing. Yeah, great to be here. Good to be here. So Thank you. why don't we start out with getting to know you a little bit as an individual. Sure. And tell me a little bit about you, background, married, kids. Just bring me up to speed with you as an individual. Yeah, start with the important stuff first is I got a two and a half year old boy who's awesome. it's an awesome age. He's running around like crazy right now. My uh, my wife and I uh, have known each other since first grade. We both grew up in North Carolina. I'm not originally, I was born in New York, but since I was six in North Carolina. And our parents grew up about a mile away from each other. So, and they, they still they still live a mile away from each other. So, my wife and I certainly care about this area. We got both our sets of grandparents for our son is in North Carolina. Oh, this is where we want to raise a family. And so, I think getting to know me and what, why I'm passionate about Co-Founders Capital, it's important to know that I care about this, this community, which is which is important. Some more about my background. I played ice hockey nice. growing up. Yeah, okay. that took me to Boston when I was 14. Went to boarding school in Boston. Left this area. Uh, you must have been pretty good. Uh, well, it, it was. It, it's all relative. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, yeah. so there wasn't a ton of hockey down here. In uh, this is the late 1990s, okay, got and early 2000s. So there wasn't a ton of hockey. So for me to get more than an hour ice time a week, I had to go north. So uh, went to boarding school thinking I was. It was a hockey school, but it was certainly much more than that. It was all academics, and I got some of the best education I could get. Wound up getting in off the wait list to Harvard. I guess even Harvard admissions makes mistakes from time to time, and they let, <laughs> they let me in. And so four great years at Harvard, absolutely loved it, played a little bit of hockey there, and then wanted to start something, wanted to start a business while all my roommates were going to do an investment banking and your traditional kind of Ivy League paths. Yeah. I knew that I was going to start a hockey training business back here in North Carolina. And at that point, I had been dating my now wife and uh, moved back to the area and Grew that business for six or seven years after 2008 and uh, back to business school at UNC and got heavily involved in this, what I'm doing now. So I'm happy to talk about that story, but I think the important thing to know for me is got a family here, plan to raise my family here, and uh, this community means a lot to me. No, that's important. I mean, one of the things is that a lot of folks have this conception that great business minds, you got to go to Silicon Valley. Yeah. To get funded as an entrepreneur, you got to go out west. And what's really cool, Harvard educated, very successful MBA from UNC, and you guys have decided right here in the Triangle is a target rich environment for you to build a great business from an investing standpoint. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I, I think one of the important things with, and I say, I often joke that 85% of what I do is just connect really smart people to each other that can help each other out. And so one of the important things to me is just having a network and, and being in a community, knowing folks. And what I was able to do through my having my own business, being business school here, is create a local network that I can help leverage, help entrepreneurs leverage, help investors leverage. And I think that's part of what you know has made me, co-founders, uh, some of our companies successful, is just kind of knowing, having a really strong network that you can you can lean on. One of the quotes that I heard, and, and I forget who said it, but your network is a substantial part of your net worth. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. obviously when you're growing something in business or really in life, right, it's not just who you know. It's who you know that's going to really lend a hand to how you need to grow, yeah. right, and, and really be a part of doing that. And so I totally echo what, what you're describing. When you guys are looking at businesses and talking to entrepreneurs, what are some of the characteristics of yeah. businesses that you think are investable opportunities I think I think more important than the the business or the model or anything is is the people. So you look first at the management team and certain characteristics of the management team that I really look for first. So it's it's passion, right? Are the entrepreneurs passionate about what they're doing? Are are they doing it for the right reasons? 
And then their ability to articulate their idea. I know that that seems like you, you need somebody on the team that can articulate what the value of that company is, what the value they're providing to their potential customers. And if you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult to be successful. One small thing we always say is, in, you know, David and I say is, uh, if we're in a pitch and in the first 10 minutes, we have no idea what you're doing, who you're selling to, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible, for us to invest in that company, unless you have some other co-founder that comes in and does have that ability to articulate what you're doing. And so I, I do think that that's an important characteristic of an entrepreneur, or at least a founding uh, you know, team member. No, that's pretty powerful. One of the things when we look at some of the home run investments of our time, right, we look at the Apples and the Googles of the world and different things. There have been partnerships or Microsoft and Bill Gates and, and his partnership team. And then I look at you and David, right? How did you guys come together sure. and decide that your talents and skills were complementary, your ways of working together would be able to create a successful partnership? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're still, it's it's funny because every day, you know, is we're working together trying to figure out who's going to take on what responsibility and what role as this fund evolves. But I'll take you back. When I was in business school, I was uh, had some internships and I was working with a couple of the local uh, venture capital funds in the area. So I did an internship with Idea Fund Partners. I uh, got to work with Lister Delgado and John Cambier. Uh, pretty closely. And, and they, they helped me learn my initial ropes in the venture capital community. And I was also interning at the same time with um, NC Idea, which is a, a private foundation, provides you know 12 to 13 grants, non-dilutive grants for local technology companies. And while I was doing that, I kept hearing this name over and over again, and it was David Gardner. And it was David Gardner's an investor in this company, or David Gardner's an advisor to this company. And sometimes we would put companies that we were going to take out of the pile of potential winners and put them back into the pile because we knew David was involved. And the value of that was David was so hands-on with these companies where even if they were young entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs, knowing from an investor perspective, knowing that David was on their team gave them a better chance to be successful. And, and that's true of any company. Having the right advisors, mentors around you are going to give you a better chance to be more successful. So I, I, I joked that, you know, I said I'm going to meet this David Gardner guy. And finally, uh, he had just raised his first fund, $12 million fund with co-founders. And he realized he needed some help. And he sent out an email. And the email said, you need some help at the fund. Shitty hours, little to no pay, but you might learn something. And I said, this is great. I got all this college and MBA debt <laughs> racked up, and but I guess I should go talk to David. And and that was the start of it. I said, David, give me a shot. Let me prove my worth. And uh, and that's how we, we, we came to be a team with co-founders. That is really awesome. I mean, one of the things that I would uh, equate to that is my mentor and good friend, Grant Willard, is an entrepreneur here locally, and I was employee number seven in one of his companies. And uh, when he was offering me a job, the money was like, this was 20 years ago, but his money was $10,000, $15,000 less mm -hmm. than market value even then. But what he said to me is that I'll give you an opportunity and I'll mentor you. I'll teach you to be more than just a sales guy. I'll teach you how to be a business guy. Yep. And that opportunity to me was so much more important than the short-term money. And my life has changed because of it. Yeah. And, and we, that's, it's the same pitch that we give to a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think I can come from a real honest place when I have the conversation with them, which is entrepreneurs know this, that they're very likely not going to be making market salaries. They're going to be taking pay cuts and they're going to be working for equity. And starting an early stage venture capital fund is very much the same way. You're betting on your success. You're betting five, 10 years. You're betting on yourself for five, 10 years down the line. 
Uh, you have to keep proving success to your investors in order to raise more money. And it's very similar to an entrepreneurial journey. And so when I sit across the table from an entrepreneur and have to have that conversation, I know because I've been in that same situation. And David and I had to have that same discussion at the beginning. And so I, I think it comes from a genuine place. That's really awesome. Tell me some of the things that you've learned partnering with David that have helped you personally grow. Yeah, well, just so so many things. I I, I think one is just continuity uh, in in the way you treat people from in business relationships. So we have very consistent ways that we talk to our entrepreneurs or business partners, our investors, which is you know things we're telling them or ways that we make deals, and it's very consistent. So I could see you know even sometimes where it's not maybe beneficial to co-founders capital from a bottom line perspective, it's still the right thing to do uh, with entrepreneurs or with other investors. And he's very, very consistent in those conversations. And it was something that kind of triggered to me very early on that it came from a really authentic place. And with the volume of deals that he's done in his experience in the past of starting companies, selling companies, hiring, firing, the way to do it, that there's a right way to do it. And in the grand scheme of things, that treating people the right way and doing things the right way will will come back, and come, you know, all come around to you. Yeah, that's really powerful. I remember personally, right, and I'm a part of one of the the funds that you guys have raised, and, and super excited that, yeah. that that I got that opportunity to be super clear, <laughs> right? And, and we love some, having you yeah, for some of the same reasons that track record that you guys described. But one of the things that in talking with you and David about that was the authenticity of. Right, we're going to care for this capital you're investing as if it were our own. Yeah, and and really uh, everything I've seen has has been that. Talk to me about entrepreneurs and that responsibility they have when they start taking other people's money. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that that is that's true, and uh, they do have a new responsibility that they take on. I think it's very important to be open and honest with your investors. I wrote an article a few weeks ago that, that came out. Uh, it was about exit strategies. just happened to be the, the topic of conversation uh, for that one. But it was having open, open and honest communication with your investors and your entre- investors with their entrepreneurs about what is your exit strategy? What is a successful exit to you at this moment in your life? Because your what's a successful exit might be different when you start a company versus three years in versus five years in for good or for bad, okay. right? And just getting your investors' money back or having a little bit of money to you know pay some bills that you racked up over the last couple of years, that could be a successful exit for an entrepreneur at a given time in their entrepreneurial journey. And so that is an example of the open line of communication you need to have with your entrepreneurs. And one of the things we kind of pride ourselves on is when we're looking at a new investment, um, and the entrepreneur wants to do diligence on us. We say, well, here are the 23 founders that we invested in through co-founders. Call any single one of them. Here's their number. Here's their email. Reach out. Ask them any question you want. We're not going to filter this for you. And and we feel confident doing that. We have a lot of pride in that. I mean, that's, that's you know, not to filter those folks out. No, that's pretty awesome. And it comes across both in how you guys operate that I'm aware of and, and just the inflection in your voice. When you think about the successes, right? Those are pretty clear. And we'll talk about some of those. When you guys have not been pleased with an investment you've made, yep. what have you learned? What, what's been a couple of blind spots? We, we like to think that we have a great relationship with our entrepreneurs and we feel that we do in general. But we also have to realize that we're investors and we're more likely than not a source of capital for them if they get into any sort of trouble. So how do we separate out 
the conversation and reporting versus what is actually going on in the company, right? What we've realized is the companies that get into problems are the ones that never stop selling us on an investment versus saying, we already have your money. Now let's tell you what's wrong. This is where it hurts. We often compare it to the doctor. The doctor's only going to be able to help if you actually tell him what hurts. And if you keep telling him everything's fine, the doctor's not going to be able to help. And not that we're, uh, we can cure all, but we can at least start having conversations about how we're going to impact the business or change the strategy or do something different to ease that pain point within the company. So that springs a thought, right? That level of transparency is a powerful in a relationship with an investor and entrepreneur. If you're running a company and you have employees, everyone is typically afraid of that admission of setbacks. And really, it becomes powerful when you can say, this is our problem to solve together. Here's everything I know about the challenge. What would you suggest? And I think what you what would you suggest is good, but also for an entrepreneur to walk in to a boardroom and say, here's the problem. Here are three things I think might be a solution. Here's what I think I would recommend. What is your input? I think that's the most important thing because it shows that the entrepreneur is taking ownership, taking responsibility, but then asking for input and guidance rather than a please fix this for me, right? And and it might get to a situation where it's please fix this for me, but we hope that the entrepreneurs put forth the effort to at least some thought behind here's how I think we could fix it. No, that's powerful. One of the things that, that I've been really encouraged and, and wanting to ask you is tell me some of the diamonds in the rough that you took a little leap with yeah. that maybe didn't quite meet your thesis, but just <laughs> in your gut, you said, you know what? We just feel like we want to do this. And that ended up being something that, that worked out really well. Oh, yeah. If you can share. Like, I don't... I don't yeah, okay. yeah. It's, uh, you know, without getting into specific yeah, companies, sure. <laughs> they'll, probably, they'll probably know who I'm talking about. But, um, you know, there's been companies where you just where you just can't check the box on something you think is really important. Like, you know, we had one company we did in Fund 2. We just invested in Fund 2 where we just couldn't really get our head over the uh, market size, the market opportunity. We just said, I just don't know if this is a big enough market for us to invest in. And we told the entrepreneur and we told the entrepreneur. And I remember we got to the go, no go decision. And Dave and I sat and we went through a process that we always do. And we just said, all right, we're both, we both agreed. We said, let's go for it. And we called the entrepreneur and we told him all the reasons we were thinking about not investing, which was, you know, four or five very, very good reasons. <laughs> right, right. And then I could tell the entrepreneur was like, it's a no go for them. But then we finished the call saying, so guys, despite all of that, we have faith. We're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to make this investment. And we couldn't get over the market and we couldn't get over the price points and we couldn't get. But then it was just something about the entrepreneurs. And we said, we're going to do this. And we did. And they've been rocking it since we made, since we made the investment. So that's one. Other, other things that are hard are first-time entrepreneurs. And with first-time entrepreneurs, which are most of the, the investments that we make, they don't necessarily have the life experience to what's the first time that, what's going to happen the first time they have to hire, they have to fire, they have to close a big deal. They, another investor is trying to cram them down. Just something happens. And what we, what's pushed us over the edge on those folks is who are the ones that are going to leverage us in that situation in that to make, moment. to make the right decision, right? They're not going to let us run the company for them because we don't want to do that, nor do we have the time to. But in that critical moment, are they going to reach out to us and say, guys, this is where I need help? And 
you can tell a lot about that during the diligence process and working with those entrepreneurs is when are they going to reach out and say, I need help with this situation? No, that's awesome. In order to stay sharp, insightful about yeah. market, market trends, what do you read? What, what's interesting to you that keeps your interest and keeps you learning and growing? Yeah. So I try, I try to follow as much of the just daily updates as I, as I can. So if it's new articles that are coming out on Crunchbase Daily or TechCrunch, TechWire, uh, anything that's coming out on that. But what I really try to do to keep us up to date on our investments, our uh, technologies that we have is talk to customers. I mean, nobody knows nobody knows more about what's going in the market than a customer that's been pitched to a thousand times for different software products. And I think that's the important thing. So in diligence with us, most of our companies we invest in are pre-revenue, or maybe the company has one or two customers. So how do we get to know whether that technology is going to gain traction before we write a check? Well, if you go and talk to 20 customers, you'll figure out pretty quickly if that value prop resonates and whether there's actually a business there, because whoever that decision maker is I'm talking to about that product has probably looked at 50 other products to see if it could solve that same pain point. So that's super powerful yeah. and simple. Yeah. And that, right. right. And, and that's the genius of it. Right. I, I was talking to another investor friend. We were talking about um, building out product based you know, software companies. And one of the things he said is if you talk to 100 people, you know what to build. and You don't have to build it twice. Right. And a lot of people that are starting companies in the tech space are computer science guys, they're engineers. So they want to get really, really focused on the product and how to how do I define that product development process when a lot of the research can be done with very little investment by talking to people. Right. Having maybe a clip through PowerPoint or something like that. So to show the visual, but you can get a lot of market intelligence, like you said, actually talking to those buyers. Well, it's about it's about the pain point. And we, we always say if. If you could give someone a, a blue pill and it solves their pain, they're going to just take the blue pill. They don't care how the blue pill was made. They don't care how much money went into it. They just want their problem solved. And so the, one of the last things we do as far as diligence, or maybe it's on meeting three or four, is we actually look at the tech and we actually do the demo and we go through all that stuff. Because what's more important than that is, is there a market need? Is there a pain point? And can it be solved? If we think we can, then the technology is only, it's a function of time and money. And, you know, the amount of money affects the amount of time too. So, and if we have the money, we can control that piece of it. What we can't control is the demand in the market. We can't create market demand. We can help solve that pain point, right? So, When you think about our business landscape in the triangle, yeah. right, relative to other parts of the country, talk to me about some of the advantages you think we have as we look at growing our backyard. Mm -hmm. as a successful ecosystem. And really, we're all helping each other as we succeed and move and learn. What are some of the benefits you think and like and why you've really stayed and built a home and a business uh, in the Triangle? This morning, at a conference this morning, I ran into five, probably five companies that we either passed on or decided to take a different deal outside of ours. I ran into probably 20 different investors that I've co-invested with or are raising other venture capital funds or have other venture capital funds in the area. And not a single one of those folks that I ran into, do I have any sort of remorse, any sort of competitive feelings about, I want all of us to be successful. And I think that that is one of the things in the triangle that is very unique. We're not all chasing, you know, even if there is overlap of a deal that we're going together, the success of one of the funds or one of the companies is going to, you know, rising tide effect, right? Lifts all ships. That's right. And, and we actually mean that here. 
uh, and we all kind of wish each other well and are rooting for each other. So, From some of the companies that I'm looking at, one of the things that jumps out to me is really what's the cost of a software engineer? Like when I when I think about companies and they're talking about Silicon Valley and different things like that, and it's you know two hundred thousand dollars for a bright engineer versus Raleigh Triangle, it's you know hundred hundred ten hundred fifteen. That cost effect is there, but I totally agree with that spirit of helpfulness and and that resourcefulness of people wanting to make it together for the region. And on the early side, so when you're comparing cost of living, cost of hires, how much capital folks need to raise. That stuff matters on the front end. So what I mean by that is if I'm trying to figure out how much money I need to raise, whether it's 500000 or whether it's $5 million, yep. that matters on the front end where you're starting growing that team. On the exit, it doesn't matter as much. So if a company is worth $50 million or $100 million, it's worth $50 million or $100 million no matter where it is. Because your acquirers, it doesn't matter where your acquirers are. That's the value it has to their business. Got it. So here you have the buying power locally to raise less capital or have your capital go further and then exit for the same amount. It's You're not getting diluted on your exit, which just do the math. I mean, look at the math. It works. Yeah, so. yeah no, that's really, really powerful. For education of our entrepreneurs, uh, somebody's got an idea. They think mm-hmm. they want to be an entrepreneur. Give them a couple of pieces of advice from a family personal standpoint in terms of are they ready to really take that leap? And then the second piece of that question is, how do they go about betting if they really have got something? Yeah. We always talk about to entrepreneurs, we try to be very, very honest up front and say, hey, what what do you need to live on? Right. Everyone's kind of in a different place in their life. So some folks are just out of college and hey, thirty thousand dollars a year, that's that sounds great, right? They've never had a paycheck before, so they can they can live and work with that. They got no kids, they don't have a spouse, they live in their parents' basement or garage yep. or wherever. And that works. Other folks are very successful business people that have families, have a mortgage. You know, they need 100, 150K to live. And that's okay. But what's important is knowing that the amount of capital you're going to raise, if you need to raise more capital, it's going to dilute you out a little bit. It's a give and take. So you're not going to get your market salary and all the equity you want at the same time. And that's fine. Just understand where you are on that continuum and what that balance is. And then be honest with your investors about it. So we've looked at companies where folks say, hey, listen, I have to have 150 k to live. Well, they're going to need to raise more money and they're going to own a little bit less of their company. And that's fine. Right. And we're OK with that. Or, or folks say, hey, I want to take as little money as possible. I don't need to pay myself anything, but I want to maintain this piece of equity. That's, a, that's OK, too. The other thing I would say to entrepreneurs that want to start this journey is, where do you want to be? Where do you want to take this? Does this need to be? Do you want to try to build a unicorn? Do you want to have a billion dollar company? Do you want to exit for $500 million in 15 years? Or are you happy starting and growing a company and selling it for $10 million and pocketing 95% of that money? There's nothing wrong with doing that. I think everybody would agree there's nothing wrong with doing that. So understand what kind of business you need and is it the right kind of business that you need to take venture capital money or angel money or can you bootstrap this thing? Can you do some services work early on where you can get a little bit of cash flow and then you can grow it into a more scalable business? Do you need to grow it into a more scalable business? And I I think that uh, one of the conversations I was having this morning was I think that it's cool to be an entrepreneur and raise capital and get the series ABC, but it's not necessary for every business. And I find that a lot of entrepreneurs are almost offended when I tell them that I don't think that this is a this could be a great business. But I don't think it's a venture-backable business. And that's not an offensive statement. That is, 
here's how you exit your company with the most amount of money in your pocket at the end of the day, which maybe I should start phrasing it like that because people wouldn't find it so offensive. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. No, but that's a great point. One of the things that, just to reiterate, it's knowing what you want and what you want for you and your family, uh, value trade-off for your effort is not the same as you may read about in Forbes or Inc. Magazine that week, right? And when you understand that, then you can find the investment team that that can best suit you to help you get what you want. And that's pretty powerful. You wrote an article, uh, Tell a Consistent Story or You Might Not Like the Ending. Yeah. Can you give us a little synopsis of that of that article? Sure, sure. So investors in the triangle, we all know each other. We all talk to each other. Entrepreneurs all know each other and talk to each other. And honesty is the best policy because if you're honest with everything you're saying, you don't have to try to remember what you told investor X, Y, and Z. And I'll be sitting around with a bunch of other investors and they'll start talking about a company and how many clients they have and how much revenue they have. And all, and I said, I just met with that company or I just heard something very, very different. And that throws up some big red flags. Yep. And so you always want to be consistent. And what helps entrepreneurs be consistent with their reporting is to clearly define their metrics. Okay. Let me give you an example. If I ask an entrepreneur, how many customers do they have? And they tell me 10. I'll say, okay. So you have 10 paying customers and they'll say, oh, no, 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 not all of them are paying. Six of them are paying and four of them are currently beta testing. Okay. So six of them are paying your regular price. Oh, no, no, no. Six of them aren't paying my regular price. Two of them are paying the regular price. Four are paying this early bird special that I gave them. Well, now that is a very different outlook on what is actually going on than saying I have 10 customers. And so what I encourage entrepreneurs to do is build up their story so that an investor can't tear it down. So they'll come in and they'll say, hey, listen, I have two customers that are paying full price. I have four customers that are paying this beta pricing. I have four others that are current beta testers that aren't paying anything, which leads to 10 total what I call customers, how I define customers. There's nothing I can do to tear down that story. But if we start the other way that I said at the beginning, I have 10 customers, that gives an opportunity for an investor to tear down that story or disagree with another investor that they're hearing about this from that says they have 10 customers. So I want to add to that because that's such a powerful example uh, that works at every level of an entrepreneur. If you build up the right story, then what the investor will do is ask leading questions forward and not take the conversation backwards. And what you want as an entrepreneur is you want that investor dreaming with you, right? All right, if you've got 10 customers constructed that way, what's the next step to get those two paying customers to 10 fully paying customers? And now me and that investor, you and that investor are talking about the future, and that's what you want. Yeah, you're exactly right. The the other big example that we see all the time is with users. Users, okay, well, how many are active? Okay, well, if a 10th of my users are active, well, that's not as impressive as the original number of users that you said. So I would say to an investor, if I was an entrepreneur, I would say, hey, we have 100 active users out of 1,000 signups. And I measure active users by people that have logged into my system once every week. That's how we define it. That is very clear. I know exactly what we're talking about. And any number now greater than 100 is a step forward, like you were saying. That's right. Not a step back. And one of the things like... I'm seizing on this because even at the level that I'm playing at as as an angel, right, and really just kind of looking at some things I want to do, you're looking for somebody that understands what truth is for their business. And if I can't get through that with you, 
like how do I like I don't how do I put my check with you? Because because yeah. then now I've got to dissect when you say use of funds. Did you mean you were going to hire somebody full time, or you're going to hire somebody part time, and you needed a little extra tuck in personally? It just creates a little bit of weirdness in terms of now I have to sanity check every word that you're saying. Yeah, no, and I think that that's that's really important. Is once you lose that credibility, where everything that I'm seeing is is the truth, and it's not yep. it's not a, a shade of of the truth. It's the actual truth. Um, once you lose that with an investor, it's very hard to go back the other way. You've probably read a lot of books. You've talked to a lot of people. What are some of the things you'd recommend for up and coming entrepreneurs or even seasoned entrepreneurs that want to sharpen their teeth in terms of books that have good blueprint for how to think about starting and growing a business? Well, I'm going to I'm going to give a little plug to my partner here because it it really is one of the nuts and bolts about starting a business is <laughs> uh, David has a book called The Startup Hats and it's right where most of the entrepreneurs around here live. It's it's when they're first thinking about starting a business, it's do you want to be an entrepreneur? And then all of the different hats that you need to wear at some point to be an entrepreneur. The hardest part for some entrepreneurs isn't putting on those hats, it's taking them off. It's so I'm the I'm the technology person or I'm the salesperson. Well, now you need to scale a business. You're no longer the technology person. You're no longer the salesperson or you're no longer the finance fundraising person. When do you take those hats off? And it, listen, it's great. And uh, <laughs> I'll give it another plug because it helped me get my job. I read it the night before I interviewed with him. So I knew how to answer all the questions he was going to throw at me. So I, I cheated a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so. I, and, and when I reached out to David just to get to know him, I read the book first and just said, hey, listen, here are a couple of things I liked on your book. I got a question about this. Yeah. And then he responded back and we and we, we hooked up. But it's very good. I, I agree with that recommendation totally. It's also an easy read. It is not That's something right. that tries to make running a business a complex educational dig. It just says, here are some platform ideas that you're going to need to understand to be successful. And then it's spelled out. And so I would echo, I would echo that in a big way. I did, I did just also read uh, Bad Blood, the, the Theranos story. Is it Bad, Bad Blood, I believe was, is the name of it. And that was a uh, very interesting read just as a lot of the topics that we just talked about. Honesty with your employees, honesty with your investors, how it's possible to raise capital just by fudging the truth here or there, all right? Or just saying, you know, what you think, saying what you have today is what you think it's going to be in three or six months or a year. It just shows how everything can go off the rails very, very quickly and how you you get yourself by the eight ball. So yep. kind of goes back to our theme of just uh, honesty, transparency, and how everyone needs to be on the, on the same page. No, I think that's that's powerful. What would you, we're going to move away from business just a little bit. Think about our country. Mm-hmm. Think about everything that's going on, whether it's business, whether it's personal, political. If you had a magic wand, what would you do to change our our, our country? Oh, um, I would love more open discussion. There are certainly people, friends, colleagues, business, you know, investors that I can have an open dialogue with on things we disagree about. But I feel like those conversations are getting fewer and farther in between. Whereas they're more likely now to result in, you know, defending yourself and getting a little bit more confrontational yeah. <laughs> and, and risking friendships. Uh, and I really just don't like that um, where it's, you know, you should have some open dialogue and open disagreement. And one thing that 
that I find from, especially from fundraising with a lot of very successful people here locally is, you know, there's Republicans, there's Democrats, they're all (laughs) very, very smart people. They can all support their beliefs, right? And that's fine. And that's great. But more open dialogue. Uh, One thing that I see in in a business that I think I'm concerned a little bit for for our startups uh, in this area is how our immigration laws have been tough on some entrepreneurs. Uh, How do entrepreneurs coming out of school here, how do they maintain their work status in this country? You know, you can have entrepreneurs coming out of school that can raise capital and create jobs for tens, dozens, hundreds of people and be able to get funding. But are they going to be able to to have that window of a year, two years, three years out of school where they can stay here and help and start that business. That's something I've seen. I think that's a, a bigger level issue that I've really seen impact here. Uh, another thing for this is this is high level tax kind of implications from our country that can affect early stage startups is you look at things like stock options. You look at you look at that's how we're able to recruit talented people when we can't afford a market salary that's is right. the you know, future hope of these big exits. What happens if we start taxing some stock o- unrealized stock options? Okay, mathematically and politically, you can probably make a statement that you know this is how we're going to fix the budget, or this is how we're going to do this. But if you look at the actual impact of legislation like that, how does it affect the entrepreneur that has you know on paper they're worth ten million dollars because they have all these options in a big company, but they've been working for thirty thousand dollars a year. That's right. Right. So anyway, those those are some big things. I know that's multiple answers. No, but, it's good stuff. But just when you see these sweeping political statements or ideologies, and then you see how it actually impacts folks at the ground level, I think um, I get concerned. One of the things you said is very smart people can defend their point of view independent of open-mindedness or not, mm-hmm. or facts. Mm-hmm. I do see the same thing that you do and feel it, that there are less people that I can talk with openly about things that do actually affect all of us. Mm-hmm. And that shrinking of dialogue doesn't help any of us. Yeah. And so I would absolutely, uh, I would, I would, you'd be preaching to the choir on that one <laughs> in, 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 in that regard. As we wind our time together, number one, totally appreciate both the candor and the thoughtfulness of you taking your time in, yeah, in a sincere love way. It. What are any parting thoughts you'd like to share for emerging entrepreneurs? Any uh, points of wisdom that you'd like to give back uh, to our listeners as they chase their dreams and journeys? Yeah, I'd say set some time uh, aside every day to have communications with folks where it's not exactly obvious in your first meeting, maybe where where you can help each other out or where you can help them. Um, There are so many cases where someone asked for a cup of coffee and I just didn't realize, you know, I didn't see the opportunity there for me, but I'm glad that I did it in hindsight because two years later I said, Hey, you remember that guy? He was an expert in this field, which I never thought I'd be involved in. And now I am help people when you can, because that stuff comes back around to you. You know, people want to pick my brain about fundraising, about whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, two, three, four years later, you know, there's a way we can work together on something and help each other out. So set some time aside for that. So another another point would be on, on a similar kind of subject is always make some time for recruiting. And recruiting doesn't mean that I'm hiring for a position that I have open right now. Recruiting is I'm having conversations. People are getting to know me. They're making a decision on whether at some point maybe they'd like to work with me in the future. You're always recruiting because at some point you're going to want to call on that person and say, hey, 
now I have a job open or, hey, now I can afford you. Now do you want to work together? And so set time aside just to give back to meet with people where you don't know what the outcome is going to be and set some time aside if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to be a manager and you want to grow a team to recruit people, even when it's not obvious. That's phenomenal. One of the things with uh, fundraising that one of my lawyers said to me is it's a full-time job as a CEO. Mm -hmm. So then you got to figure out who's going to run the company and who's going to raise the money because fundraising is really, really hard. The other thing, back to your point on recruiting, is that you have to recruit the talent before you need it because when it's available, you've got to make a decision usually with a window because if they're good enough, they have other options. Right. And so building that relationship before you need it gives you that itch, especially especially right now with you look at unemployment rates and uh, where it is. It's very difficult to recruit right now. But if you have a pre-existing relationship with somebody and they're looking for the opportunity to work with you, it makes it that much easier. No, That's powerful. The other thing I've found is if you are many of the businesses that I've run and are and I'm running are bootstrapped and they start really, really small. So we're here at Walk West uh, as a digital consultancy and agency. 2015, we had two people, a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Fast forward to 2019, second year in the Inc. 5,000, 5 million plus in revenue were growing. But there's people I was recruiting two years ago that I told them what was going to happen. They saw it come true. And now when we can afford them, they want to jump on board because they saw the actual progression of what we were pitching even when we were small. And so it gives you an opportunity to give people a seed of what you're trying to create. And then as you're successful, they're going to watch you. And we'll be a part of being on that on that train. And so that's really, really good advice on several fronts that, that you've shared, which I think is amazing. I think that what you and, and your team are doing and really not just staying in the community, but being embedded and active and giving in the community, spending time with us. We just appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And hope this kind of spreads the message. And like I said, I think the rising tide will lift all these ships in the, in the local community. That was Tim McLaughlin from Co-Founders Capital. For more on Co-Founders, head over to cofounderscapital.com or you can Google Tim McLaughlin or David Gardner and find entrepreneurial advice articles that they've written on so many sites, including WRAL TechWire and GrepBeat. Also, the book Tim referred to that David wrote, Startup Hats, is available on Amazon. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jason Gillikin, for EarFluence. For more on the EarFluence Podcast Network, including Weddings for Real, Beyond the Obituary, Backstage at DPAC, and Talk West, visit EarFluence.com or check us out on social media or at EarFluence Media. Intro and outro music for this episode is You Can't Stop Me from Jensen Reed. You can find more of his music at JensenReed.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Monday on Hustle Unlimited. <laughs>